I'm Rebecca Kent, host of JLL's Perspectives podcast. On this episode, we've got a so we've got a guest bill that is a bit more substantial than usual, and that's because we're aiming to give our listeners a global picture of the state of office leasing at the moment. And we just thought, what better way to do that than to round up our experts who are actually on the ground negotiating those leases from the UK to the United States over to Europe, down to Asia, and, um, and even further down to Australia, where I'm hosting this episode from now. Without further ado, I'll introduce all of our guests, who are my colleagues at JLL. Murray Law D'Souza, Head of Office Leasing in EMEA. Hi there, how are you going? Fine, thank you, and hello from Paris. And Jeff Eckert, who heads up leasing in the United States, in Texas at the moment. Yes, good to see everybody this morning. Moving over to Tim O'Connor, who oversees office leasing across Australia and is also based in Sydney, where it is currently an absurd hour to be recording a podcast. Hi, Tim. Hi, Beck. How are you? Really used to being up at uh, a ridiculous hours just to to keep things nice and uh, and easy for Jeff and, and Neil on the call. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex Barnes, Managing Director of JLL's Hong Kong and Macau Operations. How are you going, Alex? Hey, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Moving over to Neil Prime, who is typically based in London, and Neil specialises in large-scale project leasing across the UK, but you're not currently in London, Neil, are you? No, I'm an hour ahead of Jeff. It's six o'clock. I'm in New York City. My head's, uh, my head's still in London time, but the rest of it's on New York time. So thank you all for joining us. Let's get straight into it. Neil, I'll start with you. What what do you think has defined office leasing in 2023 for you? Certainly in our market, I think, and, and I think it's quite common, I'm hearing in New York the same, the flight quality is, you know, just continues and grows um, as, you know, as occupiers encouraging their people to return to work and back to the office really are making sure that they're they're they, they come to an environment that they want to be in that they feel productive and uh, and that will attract them back so you know it's uh, we, we're seeing a, a, a bifurcation of our market between the very best and the rest and the very best you know we're still seeing rental growth we're still seeing good levels of take up and what's I think for all of us globally been a very challenging year. Um, but if you're not in that very best uh, bracket, it's it's a slow, hard grind at the moment. I can't believe Prami's stolen the, the, the phrase of 2023 flight to quality so early in this session. Um, but that, that has <laughs> that has certainly summed things up. Um, I, 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 I paid Rebecca to let me go first, Tim. Yeah, I, it was it was inevitable. It's not the were, first time that's happened to me. Yeah, correct. So, it, look, that that for me is has been the big one. Um, hasn't been a picnic for for investors and developers either, because that list of things that occupiers are now looking for and what's driving their decision making is getting longer and longer. And as the the cost of construction, um, cost of retrofitting buildings is getting more and more expensive. Um, yeah, you know, there's a there's a real challenge in all of that for everyone. I can speak to the United States since the onset of the of the pandemic, you know, almost uh, four years ago, and I can't believe we're still even talking about a lot of this stuff, you know, almost four years later. Uh, but if if you look at net occupancy gains in the U.S. 
buildings delivered since 2015 uh, captured 122 million square feet of net occupancy gains compared to buildings that delivered 2015 and below, uh, before, uh, you had negative net occupancy gains of 354 million. So just a, a couple data points there that, that you know, really support what's happening continues to happen, you know, here in the U.S. and I think supports what Neil was saying as well. COVID was a moment in life for every human on the planet that changed a lot of things. But concerning commercial real estate, in fact, we accelerated trends that exist before. The first one, which is the most obvious for all of us, will be the return to the office. What we can say is that the global trend is to come back to the office because we know, and Neil said it, it's a place where we are creative, when we are inventing new offers, new services, and you can execute a lot of things when you're alone in your house. But it's completely different when you have to create new things. So I have one um, interesting information coming from the LinkedIn stats. In April 2022, in EMEA, 20% of the job position were offered with a four-year, four days remote a week. In October 2023, only 9% of the job position were offering a remote job, even if they have to come back to the office once a, a week. So it's something that it's not stabilized, but the big trended guy, come back to the office because it's a real social place where we can all create new things for our clients, our services, and even our actioneers. Uh, the second one is fly to quality. It's difficult to have the people coming back to the office. So you must have the best office in the best place, in the best location. And this is what we found in all continental Europe, meaning that we have a big pressure on great quality buildings, but located in all the CBDs. And we have big problems to find tenants outside the cities, but we have great buildings. And the third big thing that we have post COVID is the return to the office, the flight to quality, and the third one would be the ESG and the way the companies are looking at the future and how can they combine the return to the office with talented people and being sure that it will be a future building for them and for the planet also. So we can imagine that it will be the opportunity for the next years and we start to see it in 2023. I think it's, it's actually a very good point, De defining quality. It's not it's not new necessarily on its own. It's a combination of factors which would be you know, great connectivity, great amenity, access to public spaces, um, uh, an office building that, you know, with the, you know, top ESG, great experience for the people who walk in. When you combine those things together, that's when you get that massive outperformance compared to the rest of the market. If you strip any one of those off, then that performance just begins to drop. So there's a, you know, there's a real sort of um, like a formula that if you can hit, the, the, the your assets are performing really well. Alex, does this all resonate in the Hong Kong market? Yeah, I'd say 70% of it does. I mean, interesting, people are talking about COVID and I think Hong Kong was probably the last major market that came out of that. You know, our, our year would be typified as fits and spurts. You know, we sort of came out of that COVID mentality and and uh, releasing of the masks and travel becoming a lot more of the norm and international travel is finally coming into Hong Kong. But then that slowdown in mainland China really hurt demand. There was a huge amount of optimism in Q1 despite rising interest rates, which have a big flow-on effect in the local market here because we're pegged to the US dollar. Um, but that sort of demand coming out of mainland China just didn't really eventuate. We had a lot of 
wealth management insurance demand in the first half of the year, but it's really tailed off as you know, the economic stability in mainland China just hasn't really been able to gather any pace. So that's really sort of held back the city in terms of net demand, because if we think about the challenges that a lot of my colleagues here are talking about with return to the office, it's just not as impactful in Hong Kong where we've got multi-generational smaller homes. So there's a lot more of a, a push factor to get people back into the office. Uh, and a lot of companies that don't quite provide that same level of flexibility. So it's not as big of an issue to get people back to the office. It's really economic factors in the gateway city. Uh, on the, you know, certainly from around ESG and that flight to quality, absolutely that exists. It's really a game of musical chairs here. And there's very little net demand in the market. It is really companies moving from I say lower quality buildings in some respect to better quality buildings and taking advantage of trying to provide that right sort of space for for all their talent to try to it's not really about coming back into the mark coming back into the office but just sort of keeping them sort of physically planted in hong kong in, in some respects so it's it's been a, a you know definitely defined by what's happening in mainland china more probably than anywhere else because we're really waiting for a little bit more economic surety for the market here to see a huge amount of demand. I just want to move on to the transactional side of leasing and leasing volumes over the past year. Jeff, what's your take on the level of leasing uh, transactions that have taken place? Have you been satisfied? Who is leasing? Uh, so in short, not satisfied. And and I'll tell you why. You know, So we have not returned to pre-pandemic levels uh, here in the U.S. So our Transactional activity is, um, you know, we're. I think we, we have certainly found bottom. You know, we're doing, you know, somewhere in that kind of low forty, you know, kind of million square feet of of transactions. And this is broadly, not just JLL, uh, on a quarterly basis. Uh, in a typical year uh, or quarter, kind of leading up to the pandemic, we were doing, you know, kind of high fifty, uh, you know, high fifties. Um, you know, call it sixty million square feet of transactions. So, you know, off. You you know, roughly, you know, kind of 30, 35%, if you will. Um, what, but, you know, I think the, the green shoots that we are seeing, you know, smaller tenant deal flow is better than it's ever been. And when I say smaller tenant deal flow, kind of full floor, you know, 25,000 square feet and below, uh, those transactions have accelerated, you know, through the pace that we saw, you know, in 2019, which is a good sign. Um, you know, bigger deal flow uh, started to cooperate, you know, I would tell you in 2022, um, we actually, you know, set a record for agency leasing, um, you know, uh, here uh, in the company here in the United States. But then with the economy and, and what we saw transpired with rising interest rates, et cetera, uh, we saw the bigger deal flow kind of, you know, take a pause. And you now, did it shut down completely? No. But as I look at our, you know, kind of tenants in the markets list, you know, from market to market here in the U.S., you know, we were probably plus or minus 50% off of normal levels um, here in 23 when you compare that to 2019. So I do believe that, you know, what is happening here in the U.S. right now, um, you know, and I'm going to touch on just return to the office again real quick. I believe we're in that final significant push uh, of corporate America, of employers getting their people back to the office. We've got, you know, plus or minus three and a half million uh, employees subject to some form of mandate. And that's not to say there won't be 
pushes to get people back in, you know, in future quarters. But that is a heavy concentration of employees. And my conclusion there is, is that I think by, you know, sometime middle of the year, uh, employers are going to know what their what their you know densities are. They're going to know who's back, who's not, and and so I think that could start and will start to unlock uh, some of these uh, kind of tenant transactions uh, that are sitting there pent up right now. The challenges I think that we were all talking about on a call last week was to find the development opportunities with some certainty that they are able to commit to. Again, given all the things we've said before around the you know, the cost of debt, the cost of construction and, and various other things that's really sort of starting to, you know, have a significant impact on our future supply pipeline over the balance of this decade. And I, I think it's really interesting, Tim. I mean, certainly there there is risk in the development. I mean, the appraisals have been under pressure, so viability rents have gone up. But also, whether it's availability of materials, your supply chain, availability of labour, the you know the the additional requirements that have to be designed in ESG other sort of occupier requirements, we're actually seeing in London, tenants starting far earlier to search for their new future home um, than they ever have done before. I mean, you know, some of them are signing five or six years before their expiry because that's sort of the window to actually get the buildings built. And in London, which is, you know. It's a very crowded city. It's not just as easy to go in and build a building like like that. So it's it's a really interesting to see who's active, but when they actually have the event that is that is driving the activity. So if you're putting a requirement out into the market and it's necessary to do that over a, a longer lead time than you usually would, what are some of the sort of contingencies then that you need to put in place, just given the uncertainties that abound at the moment? It's potentially somewhat easier from an occupier standpoint if if they're dealing with a, you know, with a developer who, as Neil said, subscribes and understands, which I think you know, most if not all do around the need for that flexibility in in their footprint right from a you know from an occupier standpoint to have that ability nearer to the completion to be able to to flex that that requirement I think what and Murray law made a really good point earlier around the trends that we saw going well that, that have been accelerated uh, through this COVID period many of them existed prior to it and it's in some ways it's made, that list longer, but also more visibility around what some of those requirements are around, you know, the health and wellbeing and the the access to flex space and all these other things. I think the the whole nuance is having flexibility through the through to eventual delivery, and that's kind of from both parties. The challenge clearly from the developer side is is what that cost is, and ultimately what that economic rent looks like as well and and the further out you go the the more challenging that becomes i think i think you know coming back to the, the question rebecca about you know contingency and i i would i would also i mean i think contingency to me there's risk management uh, in 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 you know, from both the occupier and the investor perspective it is very very important particularly in big projects longer term projects that the occupier and the developer begin to partner more effectively than they 
maybe have done in certain markets historically, London probably being one of those, so that the needs and wants of both sides are understood and it can all be programmed in um, as you go forward. And like, our own experience, we we pre-leased the building uh, in Broadgate for our new uh, HQ here in London. And it was, it was probably the first net zero carbon uh, in operation pre-lease transaction. The learnings for both the investor developer, which is British land, and for us were huge. And that takes time, right? So every time you turned a corner, there was something else, you know, a decision there, impact on decision there, you know, sort of agreeing uh, a green lease, all, all these things just take time. So, you know, when occupiers are looking in marketplace, they also have to look at the scale and skill set of who they're going to partner with in terms of risk mitigation, right? Because I think, you know, that has never been more important. Uh, if, if I'm an occupier saying, right, I need to get there by that date, um, how am I going to get there, pick the right partner, you know, and and have much more open conversations than than uh, maybe our market dynamic has previously allowed. I just want to touch on contraction, portfolio contraction, contraction of spaces, which gets a lot of airtime. But that is not it's not the case that uh, that all companies are looking to contract their portfolios. Murray Law, Alex, Jeff, maybe you can give us a bit of a picture as to what actually is happening and I know Neil we did speak on a previous call that you you know some companies are actually doubling their footprints I'm happy to go first then bust a few myths I mean we we did see a lot of contraction in Hong Kong in 2020 and 2021 which is obviously a result of COVID work from home even in a place like Hong Kong which doesn't typically move in that direction and and everybody quickly looking to fight for savings that that changed really really quickly and, and actually a result of Hong Kong's often seen as the most expensive real estate market in the world, certainly as a, as a CBD in central. And when rents come off 30, 35% in that core market and, and in some other markets a little bit more, all of a sudden you start to see some uh, occupiers taking on a little bit more space, investing in their people and actually looking to provide a little bit more entrepreneurial benefit for some of the functions they might not have otherwise had operating in Hong Kong because it was such a, an expensive city. Now that's not half of the course. But you know, if you look at hedge funds, wealth management companies, they tend to make oversized profits over the last few years. And they've been more than happy to continue to gobble up space, continue to invest in real estate, and to spend a huge amount of money in providing the right spaces. So uh, you know, that I think that you know, there have been some companies that look to rationalize space. But certainly in Hong Kong, that was already happening for the last decade because of that price. And actually, that that shift and you know, we've got, everyone's talking about pre-lets and in Hong Kong, we've gone from a market average of sort of four or 5% vacancy for most of the almost 20 years I've been in Hong Kong with a hundred million square foot market, we're at 12% and we're adding on another 10 million square feet up until the end of 2027. So we get a lot of space to absorb and it was likely going to encourage a much healthier dynamic here between the developers who've been very typically a developer led market for a long time and the occupier who are more likely going to invest in the right spaces and potentially take a little bit more on as the economy starts to improve. 
Yeah, that's the uh, you know really the same theme here in the United States as well. I would you know some of the the numbers that we're tracking you know with uh, with corporate America here locally. If I'm a tenant in general that is renewing in a building, you know my footprint on average is reducing by about ten percent. If I'm a tenant that is relocating to another building, we're seeing contraction, you know, kind of up to kind of that twenty percent, uh, you know, range, if you will. Um, so again, those are kind of just high level, you know, numbers that we're seeing with respect to tenant redu tenants reducing their footprints. But you know, on the flip side of that, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing expansion happen. You know, you know, I can point to, you know, a number of, you know, banking or financial services companies, right, that are expanding, uh, if you will. You know, we're starting to see, you know, the additions to sublease. Um, you know, uh, the sublease uh, stock slow down, and that's because tenants uh, are starting to reabsorb space that, you know, at one point in time was actually put onto the sub or onto, onto the market. Hey, Beck, I know that you're meant to be the one asking the questions, but I'm interested, Jeff, in, in when you talk about the, the change on those tenants who are relocating and pay, potentially taking sort of 20% less space, um, I, I think back, you know, seven to 10 years where we saw more efficient buildings or more efficient floor plates in better quality buildings being built. And it was really, you know, again, it was leading to a not dissimilar in some respects discount in the total footprint because organisations could use the space more efficiently. How much of the reduction in that footprint, that sort of 20% on relocation is a result of more efficient buildings or better floor plates and how much is a function of maybe headcount reduction and the, or the change in, in the way that people are working, that sort of hybrid influence? Yeah, so I, I think that, so it's a good question. I think that is, um, yes, it, when, you know, whenever you're moving to newer construction, you know, nine times out of 10, you're getting into a more efficient, you know, uh, situation, right, from, from your floor plate design, you know, how you're going to construct your offices, et cetera. Uh, I think companies are, again, that are making the decision to move now, you know, getting more efficient, they're able to go, uh, you know, kind of chase the the flight to quality, if you will. Uh, you know, typically when tenants are moving from one building to another, um, they're paying more, you know, more rent. So therefore reducing footprint allows them to, you know, kind of still fit their, uh, their office overhead cost uh, within, you know, the budget that's been set aside, albeit the rent is, is substantially higher, uh, you know, as to what we've seen here in the U.S. when you're moving to a building of quality. Um, so I think those are some, uh, you know, kind of key things uh, that are happening here and and why tenants are able to, you know, and two, they're, they're making the move, right, because they're giving their employees a better experience, right? So they're willing to pay the freight, uh, et cetera. So it's not all about getting more efficient. That's certainly part of it. Uh, but it's also about how do we leverage that real estate to, to to further, you know, continue to get our people back in the office. I'm also interested in that dynamic with, you know, with some of these older buildings needing to be repositioned to meet sustainability targets and to better cater to what tenants and, you know, and, and, and workers want from an office. Um, so that on the one hand, and on the other hand, some of the, I guess, anticipated supply challenges just because of the cost of construction and the cost of everything. Maybe for continental Europe, I can tell you that it could be our major opportunity for the next 10 years and the biggest problem we have today. Um, in EMEA, in continental EMEA, you have a vacancy rate globally of 7.7%, which is quite good. The problem is that 
everything is concentrated in the suburbs of the cities, everywhere in all the countries for the same type of buildings, like great sea ones. And what the big, the big problem we have today is that the, the value of the building is higher being empty than to know how it could be refurbished or with a new tenant today. And knowing um, a country that I know very well, in France, for example, and in the Parisian region, we have 55 million square meters of offices globally in the stock. I think that eight of them won't be ever rented again. Never. Because they are greater buildings, because they are not well located, because they are we are not even speaking about sustainable buildings. We are speaking about energy, uh, uh, big gaps and holes um, everywhere. So we know that these buildings won't be again let it. So this is the main problem that we can find in a lot of countries in continental Europe. And the problem is that who is going to pay? If the government are not helping the investors, if uh, globally there is not something to help the companies and the investors to go in, in a different way to find solution, we don't have in France, for example, the right to build any new square meters on a free land. This is, this is over. The government are asking us to stop to artificialize the grounds and the lands. So we don't have the, the possibility to, to build a new square meters everywhere in the, in the countryside, uh, even in the cities. So it means that we have to transform all that stock of impossible building to let. Who is going to pay for? And this will be the big question mark, which is and can be the biggest opportunity for us all in the next years. But today, something must happen. Yeah, I would uh, I would add to that, and I think that's spot on. Um, you know, I've got a saying that I use uh, now that we are all uh, about to go through the greatest cleansing of office space in our careers, and and I say that because we we see what the tenants are demanding on where they want to be. They want to be in quality assets. So in the United States, you know, you've got a four point eight billion. Uh, kind of square foot stock of kind of class A, B, and C property. Two billion of that is B and C property. And I'm not saying that there's not going to be future leasing done in B and C product. There certainly will be, but you have a you have a you know subset of that two billion that you know I just I don't see you know demand you know continuing. Right. And so, you know, something's going to happen. You know, the, that real estate is not going to sit there forever, you know, as an empty building. It will be, you know, transformed into something else. And we're starting to see, you know, buildings get transformed of that of that stock um, or you're going to see those buildings demolished. Right. And they're going to come back as multifamily or, you know, uh, kind of last mile distribution, if you will, within industrial. So I think we're we're, we're very early innings. Of of what that transformation is going to look like, but it's coming. I think it's sort of really interesting as well. You know, we we're talking about this flight quality and the best of the best of the best, and the high higher rents, what have you. You know, there is a big segment of occupiers whose business model or margins that they work to don't allow them to pay the very highest rents. So it you know as a market. How do we accommodate the investment required in buildings? You know, and in the UK, we obviously have legislation around energy uh, efficiency, but but at a price point 
that keeps a lot of these businesses which support uh, and and add into that whole um, commercial ecosystem in our CBDs. How do we accommodate that? I think there's 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 there's, there's something really opportunistic if people get a bit more creative in terms of how they invest to make sure that it 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 conforms to legislation um but actually can be priced in a uh, a more appropriate way for 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 those occupiers yeah and i think the the commerce of doing those works is is what's really challenging and certainly we haven't seen a correction in asset values in that secondary supply here in Australia but I yet but I, I certainly agree with Neil there is a massive cohort of occupiers who don't want don't need to be in those best quality buildings but I think as time goes on you know as the, the focus is probably much more so at the moment around scope one and scope two emissions at a point we're going to start scope three is going to start to have a much greater impact on the decision-making of some of those occupiers because the threat of you being taken off a preferred vendor list by one of your biggest clients because you're not in a building that, you know, supports their sustainability goals is going to really start to have a, a much bigger influence around what those tenants do. And I do think that early mover advantage for, you know, for investors in those of those secondary buildings to be able to reposition them back to be able to capitalize on that i think is real neil touched upon legislation which i think is really going to define what that sort of medium term outlook looks like certainly in hong kong we get some great examples of buildings that are 30 or 40 years old prime cbd locations which have platinum lead and those developers have got great case studies of what they've done to bring those buildings in line as at today one of the challenges for, for any investor, and, and certainly we've got a prime asset like that, and Neil, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on the whole of the West End, because this will certainly apply as well, is that you know, you, you've got the sustainability component of it, but when you've got a 40-year-old building with multiple columns on a floor plate and a ceiling height of a certain grade and without raised floors, there is going to be a, a capped rental position that those buildings are going to achieve in the future, notwithstanding that healthy ecosystem that, that you know, cheaper building providing a CBD, which I totally agree is critically important. You know, it'll be interesting to see how investors play that role because you know they're balancing maximizing long-term uh, rental performance against you know minimal outlay or certainly no rental role for five or six years as they look to redevelop buildings in line with what might change alongside legislation. Yeah, and I, and I think you know this this can apply to probably every sort of major sort of. Um, CBD that, that that we work in, right? Because you you do have that, you know. I mean, the West End has obviously traditionally been in terms of building size, in terms of footplate and age of stock, because large parts of the West End are protected. Um, you know, it it's it's very difficult to um, sort of create the the medium term vision around a lot of that stock right and what we i mean what we have seen the more than than in previous cycles is for the west end which is smaller scale than the city but we have seen you know blackstone pre-leased a big building a big new building in barclays square uh we saw kkr do the same in hanover square so we have actually seen some scale replacement of smaller units in the marketplace 
we've also seen occupiers moving from that traditional um, sort of multi-floor, smaller scale, uh, you know, sort of portfolio style occupation to the edges of the traditional Mayfair and St. James's where they can get bigger buildings as well. But, you know, again, and you know, we, we talk very passionately about ESG and, and everything it means for us as a business and our clients. Let's let's not disabuse ourselves of the fact that ESG still is not important to certain occupiers out there. They haven't got, and so location may override everything. And we've had a brilliantly strong uh, relative uh, performance in Mayfair and St. James's over the last couple of years than we had done previously. So, you know, again, I think there's the we've got to be really careful uh, that we just don't uh, a one-size-fits-all in the markets that we work in. I think you're right, and it is, to, it is easy to focus on the big themes. And as you say, there's a whole spectrum of tenants and what they require. We need to wrap up this podcast here. We've covered so much ground, and I look forward to catching up with you again. Thank you very much, Tim, Jeff, Mari, Law, Neil, and Alex. All the best. That's Take great. care. Good to be there, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.